So Philip K. Dick had this theory that time was an illusion and that we were all actually in 50 AD. And the reason he had written this book was that he had somehow momentarily punctured through this illusion, this veil of time. And what he had seen there was what was going on in the book of Acts. And he was really into uh, Gnosticism and this idea that this demiurge or demon had created this illusion of time to make us forget, you know, that Christ was about to return and the kingdom of God was about to arrive. And that we're all in 50 AD and there's someone trying to make us forget, you know, that, you know, God is imminent. And that's what time is. That's what all of history is. It's just kind of this continuous, um, you know, daydream or distraction. Now, Philip K. Dick is right about time, but he's wrong that it's 50 AD. Actually, there's only one instant, and it's right now, and it's eternity. And it's an instant in which God is posing a question. And that question is basically, do you want to, you know, be one with eternity? Do you want to be in heaven? And we're all saying, no, thank you. Not just yet. And so time is actually just this constant saying no to God's invitation. I mean, that's what time is. I mean, and it's no more 50 AD than it's 2001. You know, I mean, there's just this one instant, and that's what we're always in. Yeah, birdie num-num and warm leatherettes. Had to bring out this PKD speech from Waking Live, because it typifies Aeon Bite. Shocking, eh? But even more appropriate as we mark our 14-year anniversary. A celebration that somehow for so long I've been able to, as Dick himself said, restore Gnostic Gnosis to the world in a trashy form. These celebrations are not about me, your host Miguel Connor, but more of a celebration about your liberation and individuality. In these times I never knew were so bloody Gnostic until my red pill suppository fully melted in these outer rectums of reality as I learned more and experienced the truth of this terra damnata. Thanks for being here. You honor me with your company and insight and destructive passion. Thank you. We live. We fight. And we die. For each other. In this celebration, we will be going really as above so below, my beloved true seekers. In a true astrotheological bacchanalia. We'll be talking about the Gnosis of Lovecraft, as well as proffer a tribute to Acharya S. Lovecraft and Acharya, you may be asking? Well, you will see the correlation, for in truth, both Lovecraft and Acharya look to the stars for inner insights and answers on the deepest nature of humankind. Both figures were also psychonauts who took a deep dive into the stellar lagoons of the collective unconscious and brought back archetypal pearls of great wisdom and often warning and changed the souls of so many individuals. As different as their work and lives were, Lovecraft and Acharya went where no man has gone before and their work and stories remain to encourage you to reach your own constellations of wonder, inside and out. In essence, write your own gospel and live your own myth. What we do in life echoes in eternity. As Joseph Campbell wrote, And where we had thought to find an abomination, 
we shall find a god. Where we had thought to slay another, we shall slay ourselves. Where we had thought to travel outward, we shall come to the center of our own existence. Where we had thought to be alone, we shall be all the world. All these wonders of art, design, human ingenuity, all utterly meaningless in the face of the only question that matters. Where do it come from? For this heroic task of Lovecraft and Echeria S., we are joined at the Virtual Alexandria by Robert and Carol Price. As a bonus, I'll provide a past interview with Scott Jones, author of When the Stars Are Right, where he really punches through the Gnostic themes and the Cthulhu mythos. You'll be blown away. If it can be destroyed by the truth, it deserves to be destroyed by the truth. Truly honored by the company of Bob and Carol, as I'm honored to serve you as your pompadus of Gnosis for the last 14 years. I'm only getting started, and hope you are too. And what have I learned in these 14 years? Let me give you a listicle, which you have grokked, are grokking, or will grok as we continue here in the desert of the real. I, like God, do not play with dice and do not believe in coincidence. It's better to burn out than to fade away. Number one, the great choice in this era is between ecstasy and entertainment. Start living your existence for the former. Number two, the awakening of an individual is a cosmic rebellion. Period. The more gnosis I have, the more I rebel. I can't help it because expanded consciousness begets freedom and freedom begets a lucid rejection of the constructs of this world. What do you seem to understand? I'm not locked in here with you. You're locked in here with me! Number three, humanity's more enslaved than I could have ever imagined. That includes most occultists and so-called modern Gnostics. They've all sold out for certainty and security. I'm talking about the pigs, the pigs in Zen, pa-pa-pa-pa-pigs. Quite an experience to live in fear, isn't it? That's what it is to be a slave. If people can't control their own emotions, then they have to start trying to control other people's behavior. Number four, love is a promise. Sophia's promise to us and our promise to having an experience of her. Number five, gnosis is the knowledge of the heart. Number six, our souls are made of stories, not atoms. Number seven, growth and evolution are gorgon shit. Transformation brings down the creator gods. As Carl Jung said, For the alchemist, the one primarily in need of redemption is not man, but the deity who is lost and sleeping in matter. Ray, when someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes! Number eight, the goal of transformation is to be fully divine, yes, but also fully human. As Abraham Heschel said, Being human is difficult. Becoming human is a lifelong process. To be truly human is a gift. Sir, are you classified as human? Uh, Negative. I am a meat popsicle. Number nine. 
all the commandments in the Bible are nothing compared to merely following the Gospel of Thomas saying six. And it goes. Jesus said, Do not tell lies and do not do what you hate. For all things are in plain sight of heaven. For nothing hidden will not become manifest and nothing covered will remain hidden. It's been a brilliant journey of self-awakening. Now you've simply got to ask yourself this. What is happiness to you? Number 10. The secret to happiness is found in the Gospel of Thomas, saying number 42. Become a passerby. That's it. Number 11. The empire never ended. To fight the empire is to become the empire. See the list above to defeat the empire. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. Am I wrong? You're not wrong. You're just an asshole. Okay, then. Heck and heckity. Let me quote scholar Stephen Davis to end, which summarizes all that I've said and most of what I'll be saying in the future. Here it goes. Perhaps you are one of those remarkable people who experience an overpowering realization of the divinity of existence. You suddenly know that everything is divine and that within you lies an ocean of God. Will you know this all of the time and every day? No, you will crest and fall and submerge again into the mundane. The realization of divinity as the be-all and end-all, as the substance of your very self, that within which you live and move and have your being, does not dominate every day, although you wish it would. The ordinary world of aches and pains and approaching death, of trouble, temptation, sin, stress, and loss seems to rule almost all the time. And yet, sometimes you can seize what you seek and see glory everywhere and know yourself to be divine. My father says that almost the whole world is asleep. Everybody you know, everybody you see, everybody you talk to. He says that only a few people are awake and they live in a state of constant, total amazement. If you are one of those people, you are one of the Gnostics. You know what you truly are, that you are God, just as everyone else is. But as a Gnostic, your existence in this ordinary and difficult world puzzles you. You ask, how did I come to be here? You don't seem to belong here. You belong in a world, a realm of divinity. And it certainly seems that the divine realm is not everyday reality. But if, in full reality, everything that exists is God, why don't we always know this? Why do some people never even think it possible to be what, in their depths, they really are? Why don't we know who we are? How did we come to forget? What holds us back from perpetual realization of our divinity? And what traps so many people in denying that their own divinity is even conceivable? These are the Gnostics' questions. What is real? How do you define real? Gnostics know that God is all and that they themselves are God. They experience this knowledge, this realization, and know that everyone else could share their experience. 
but they are continually thrown back into the seemingly hard material reality that tells them they are merely flawed humans, kin to apes, doomed to die, ruled by a judgmental creator god who often does not know a fondness for people at all. I'll say bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? Gnostics rebel against their churches and their priests, their Bible-based pastors, whose obsession with God's supposed desire to control behavior seems not to be what true religion is about. To Gnostics, true religion, elite spirituality, is a realization of the divinity of every person, an experience of ascent to the divine homeland. It is a knowledge of the way we once were as God and of the process by which God came to be self-forgetful as to become us, mere human beings under the control of another lesser God. I am the architect. I created the matrix. I've been waiting for you. Gnosticism is a religion of rebels, creative thinkers whose works were systematically destroyed by Orthodox Christianity. They lived in the home of heresy, for they were the source of self-assertiveness against the Episcopal demand for sameness. They persisted in the shadows, in certain Sufi sects, in the Christian Cathar movement, and perhaps even among the Knights Templar and the Rosicrucian orders. In other words, we're talking about an underground, which did exist in a different way during the Dark Ages. And the purpose of this underground is to find out how to preserve the light, life, the culture, how to keep things living. Their speech resounds today in the Nag Hammadi Library, read today by spiritual seekers throughout the world. Their central message is that God fell and became us, and how, through knowing that story, we can return to glory and be absorbed again into God. In the Thomas Gospel, Jesus says, He who drinks from my mouth will become as I am, and I shall be he. Wow. And we are all to do that. To wake up to our Jesus within us. This is blasphemy in the normal way of thinking in Christianity. But it's the very essence of Gnosticism and of the Thomas Gospel. And heaven, that uh, desired goal of most people, is is within us? All the gods, all the heavens, all the worlds are within us. This is the Aeon Byte interview, and with us we definitely have the pleasure of being joined by Carol Price and Robert Price to discuss a whole bunch of heretical sundries, including the new edition of The Christ Conspiracy, uh, Bob's book, Horrors and Heresies, and a whole lot of Lovecraft, we hope. Carol and Bob, thanks for coming on the show, as always. Great to be with you. Yeah, you bet. 
Truly an honor. And as I mentioned, uh, this is an Aeon Byte anniversary show. The show has been around now 14 years. I don't know what the hell I'm doing, but I hope I'm sharing some good heresy, some good insights with the world. And Bob, you were my first guest. That was in 2006. We did two hours of Gnosticism, and back then I didn't know what that most of I didn't know what you were talking about most of the time. But I think I've caught up <laughs> a bit. In for, <laughs> exactly. He's, what is he saying, Dossy Theist? What is this guy talking about? I don't get it. Yeah. But uh, it was an honor, and uh, you started it with me, and it's been a great journey. And uh, here we are. That's terrific. And with us, a great companion, too, of this show, and that is the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing, and thanks for being here. Oh, I've been looking forward to this all week, um, to be here with you and Bob and Carol. So without further ado, before I become the ventriloquist dummy for Cthulhu, let's go. <laughs> yeah, I figured you. I'm surprised you didn't hit us with a pun. There's so many puns with Lovecraft, but uh, well, I had to. I had to do a Lovecraft thing. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's early. It's early. So awesome. Well, why don't we get started? Uh, I think this show kind of relates because the dearly departed at Cherry S was all about the stars. In a way, uh, Lovecraft's mythos is all about the stars, the perils and opportunities of what lies in the stars. So I think it connects a lot, and I think we'll find a lot of connections in this journey. But Bob, uh, tell us about uh, you deciding or uh, undertaking the project of doing the second edition of a book that really informed me, The Christ Conspiracy. When I first heard about this, I happened to be on another uh, radio show or podcast, I forget which, uh, run by uh, Minnesota Atheists, and this was way back there, and uh, the host was uh, discussing one of my books, I guess it was probably Deconstructing Jesus, and uh, Acharya's uh, Christ Conspiracy, maybe another one too, and the more I heard of it, the more I thought, oh, boy, I don't know if I want to be even associated with this. And uh, somehow, not long afterward, I wound up reading the book to review it. And uh, I found plenty in there to object to uh, some things that just were distractions that were needless stumbling blocks to the critical reader. Like she she got into all sorts of stuff like um, the uh, maps of the ancient sea kings and the um, and the masons and the Catholic Church conspiracies and uh, and made various either dubious or irrelevant uh, uh, suggestions about uh, this and that, like that Mark was originally written in Latin, which it wasn't, but uh, she probably got it because somebody rightly pointed out there are various latinisms like even though it's written in greek certain uh, latin words were borrowed and um uh, and but she kind of jumped the gun on that and uh, various other things that that seemed wacky to me like she didn't really know what she was talking about and uh, i said so in a long review where I, uh, she was using old mythicist sources, some of which had been debunked. And, um, she made claims like that, uh, the crucifixion of Christ is ultimately derived from, uh, 
Asian Indian crucifixions of, of the Buddha and Krishna and so forth. And I thought, what, what is this? Where is she getting this? And I uh, followed up some of her references and found that uh, I didn't think she was understanding what they said. And sometimes it was just so vague that it was really raising more questions rather than answering them, which she thought she was doing. So I, I really gave it to this book. And uh, mainly, as I said in, in my review, I don't want to be tarred with this brush. We we don't all think this way. Well, uh, she when once she saw it some way or other, naturally she was affronted by it, and uh, she got pretty nasty. Though I, I could sympathize, I wouldn't have been too thrilled either. I meant nothing against her, but I just felt like uh, I ought to try to set things straight if only to uh, save the kind of mythicism I represent from ridicule and dismissal. Well, uh, eventually, uh, it, uh, I was discussing something about the sacred mushroom and the cross uh, theory of John Allegro, and uh, the, the issue came up as to whether this famous, mind-blowing uh, fresco uh, on a, I think uh, one of the walls of the catacombs or something, it, it seems to show Adam and Eve and the serpent and the tree of knowledge looks like a giant Amanita muscaria mushroom. And uh, this was so shocking that uh, you could almost see uh, Allegro's theory come to life. I mean, th this wasn't just speculation, but... Then some art historian said, oh, no, that's a lot of nonsense. This is just a stylized representation of, a, of an Italian pine tree of, of some kind common in the art of uh, the late Middle Ages. And so I I'm said, well, if, if somebody can show that, I'd, I would be I was disappointed to find out it wasn't the mushroom. And um, so uh, please let me know if there's another side to this. Well, she happened to see this post of mine and said, yeah, emailed me and said, I'm surprised you're as open-minded on that as you are. And uh, that got us uh, in dialogue. And I said, oh, look, I must apologize. I realize I gravely offended you and, and I can understand it. I, I didn't mean it. And I, I would like to ask you to forgive me for the offense I, I tendered uh, toward you. And she, she also did. outed her. Uh, oh name. yeah, yeah. She was not known by her real name until you. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, that's a DM Murdoch. She was not too thrilled about that. Uh, partly because she had some kind of stalker and uh, didn't want it known where she lived. And I said, look, I don't know and I don't want to know. I, I don't want to get involved in anything like that. Well, we became good friends immediately afterward. And uh, she, I would review the subsequent books of hers, which were much better, uh, much more scholarly, all-encompassing, and, and so forth. And she quickly learned, as she admitted later, she uh, really was instructed by my uh, nasty review and avoided those mistakes in the future. Well, things went on, and and as you know, you know she's in the hospital. She was in the hospital at death's door, really, 
And uh, about the last thing she said was that uh, she wanted the revised edition she had planned uh, to be given to me to complete. And I thought, holy mackerel, what an honor. And uh, so I uh, got started on it and a couple of other people added uh, appendices and the like. And what I did was to trim it down somewhat and cut out the stuff that simply was irrelevant. And um, uh, I, I think I kind of strengthened her arguments a, a couple of times and stylistically polished it up a little bit. And I think the result is really her book. Uh, but uh, with my efforts to to improve it rather than critique it as I had before. So I'm very proud of it. And I, I think it, it is a really good resource and a good thing to remember her by. She, she was really terrific. Wonderful. Yeah. And uh, please out there, audience, uh, buy the book, help her family out mm -hmm. and you will be so much wiser. I remember reading The Christ Conspiracy and it blew my mind. I, I didn't have too much of a problem with some of her, like the ideas of Allegro and salt and the and the doorways of the pyramids i always thought she was just sort of speculating and sort of putting things out there uh, and i remember i do remember i was already talking to a chair back then i remember your review and it wasn't all wrong bob for example i noticed she called augustine a mandean and even back then that i didn't know much i knew he was a manichaean but it yeah. uh, it certainly worked out well, and like you said, her scholarship was just incredible. One thing that I always thought it was interesting, and I don't think she ever backed down too much beyond, the, well, the mythicism, she didn't back down, but she always felt there was this sort of brotherhood of tectons or Freemasons socially engineering uh, religions, and she would tell me about it, and she would, for example, say, uh, Philo of Alexandria is the perfect example. I mean, this man easily, with all his money and intelligence, could have influenced Christianity, Judaism, and the world himself. He was, I guess you say, the, the Bill Gates of those times, if you want to make a comparison today. But what do you think about that, Bob? Oh, that, that's, uh, it might be slightly uh, overstated, but with Philo, I, I think the influence of, of Philo on uh, the New Testament and early Christianity is manifest and obvious. you you got to do a lot of explaining it, how it cannot be so if you don't like it. And I've noticed that some do that, like at least as I read him, James D.G. Dunn, who I, many of his books I just love, uh, he said that he tried to explain away some of these things about the Logos and all that, that, that is so similar to New Testament Christology. He, he tried to say, well, yeah, but uh, Philo was just... Uh, using figurative speech uh, in the New Testament, they really meant it. The Logos was a real person and all that. And I, I've written about that and said, I, I just don't see the distinction. This just seems to me apologetics trying to hermetically seal off the New Testament from any spooky sounding influences. But yeah, he, he was uh, in touch with the Stoics and uh, the Middle Platonists, and uh, and and I think well, Eusebius thought that Philo was a Christian. Uh, he, I mean, he's so close to the Logos Christology and all that. Eusebius figured well, the guy must have been a Christian, and somewhere he got the idea that 
Philo had gone to Rome to meet with Peter. I'd love to know where he got that, but that's kind of a shocker, really, that here is a notable early Christian that took this even farther, not just Philonic influence on early Christianity, but that it was a part of early Christianity, like holy mackerel. They don't quote Eusebius much on that, but that's what he said. But Bob, you don't see the sort of uh, secret society creating religions and like a cherry no. thought. Yeah, to me, that is uh, unrealistic, pure speculation. And I've always thought, I mean, it's possible, but I just don't uh, think it's true. It's the same sort of conspiracy thing where you read that uh, Constantine and the Council of Nicaea picked out the contents of the New Testament canon. That is utter nonsense. Uh, It uh, is just wrong in every way. Uh, And uh, it's uh, so I I try to correct that. And this is the same sort of a thing. It's oversimplifying uh, historical process. Uh, And this is uh, the same sort of thing. It must have been the result of of a bunch of staff writers coming up with a new TV show. Uh, And uh, that seems anachronistic to me. It's not impossible. But uh, my big objection to that one was it's a superfluous theory, given the major theory of Acharya, the astrotheology thing, uh, uh, which I take very seriously. Um, You just need to read two books uh, that I don't know if Acharya read and probably did. She seemed to read everything else. One is by Ignatz Goldseer, a great Hungarian student of the Old Testament and of Islam, uh, in his book uh, Mythology Among the Hebrews. He goes through many Old Testament stories and shows out shows very convincingly that the various characters. Uh, originally represented uh, the stars and the planets, the sun and the moon. And once you you read that and you take a second look at the stories, like you can't really doubt it. Uh, and uh, the hints, if you even want to call them that, are there that Samson, Elijah, Moses, Esau, and uh, others simply were the sun and then personified as a sun god, uh, and then kind of demoted to a demigod or just an exceptional human being. This is a pattern you find all over the world in mythology. And uh, in the New Testament, there's some, Jesus possesses some solar characteristics, but that's that's there's so much else going on there. I'm not sure if that's a, the best of examples. But when you look at the book of Revelation, as um, uh, Bruce J. Molina did in his book, something like the genre and message of Revelation, this guy did an amazing job uh, looking up ancient astrology slash astronomy and shows that that permeates the book of Revelation. All the hitherto puzzling uh, symbols and so on, we know what they mean. If you look uh, hard enough, and it's got astrology and astronomy throughout the book on every page. And uh, just look at those two books. You, you won't think Acharya is some kind of eccentric nut. 
she she might have pushed it farther than them, but they pushed it pretty far, and I accept what they said. So if if you do think astrotheology is the explanation, for instance, why the cross would be a sacred symbol in both hemispheres before they had any contact, uh, well, that everybody's got the same night sky, uh, and they they saw these things and used their imagination to come up with a what they were and who they were. So that would explain it. A lot of it, uh, just w- without any real uh, like, why did the Egyptians and the of the uh, Mayans and Aztecs, why did they all have pyramids? Well, is it like in the song, the, the, uh, what was it, Donovan of Atlantis? I love that song. Uh, uh, that uh, <laughs> the people fled Atlantis, the pyramid makers going to the left and the right. No, uh, but uh, it's not that tough to come up with the idea. And uh, so some of these things are simply spontaneous parallels. And uh, and that's what uh, astrotheology is positing, and and I, I think that is still very powerful. It's not some kind of antiquated or nutty view in the least. Not at all. Back then, the stars was the internet. It was the entertainment, the mnemonic <laughs> device. It was everything to the ancients, and we've lost yeah. that ability with all this light pollution. But uh, if you go yeah. somewhere secluded, my God, it's it's amazing what you can find. And, yep. and, and Carol, I'd like to ask you, if it hasn't been asked before, do you see yourself as a mythicist, or where do you stand with Jesus? Hmm. I've not been asked. Um, you know, I, I really don't um, have much of an opinion on it because I find that uh, it, it, it's difficult to um, believe thoroughly in, in, in many historical uh, figures. Um, anyway, I, I, I guess I concentrate on whether their message makes any sense and their existence ha- doesn't doesn't really matter uh, or if they ever ha- had existed um so i i um yeah i can't say that i i have a strong opinion one way or the other <laughs> awesome and did you read a cherry's work at all or um bob and i are a lot of our readings don't overlap <laughs> <laughs> I'm 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 a little more um on on the metaphysical side of things. <laughs> um and you know, I, I, I sort of get a lot from what, what he talks about, but uh there's so much to read. I'm I'm afraid I, I that it, it doesn't overlap much. <laughs> uh we come together um on, on on horror and philosophy and uh um psychology, I guess. Yeah, there's so much with the Jesus theory, and I don't have, uh, I'm like Bob, I don't really care what anybody else thinks. I mean, I I don't even know if Vance is a mythicist or what you are, Vance. What are you? Now that we, (laughs) after all these years, I can, I'm going to ask you. (laughs) Well, um, yeah, pretty much, um, I have to, I'd have to say, although I'm with Carol, which is, uh, I'm more concerned with what the messages are, and I'm not even sure. I exist historically, so I guess that makes me a metamythicist. 
Good deal. Well, interesting. Well, again, the audience, please get Acharya's book. It's really worth the read. I'm sure the second edition is great. I'm going to purchase it too. Although I still have my copy from like 17 years ago that I bought it and loved it, loved, uh, and I've got all of Acharya's books ever since then. They've all been just excellent. And like Bob said, she just got sharper and better and more insightful as she went and her scholarship just got tighter so uh she definitely rewarded the world with amazing not just about christianity but just mythology in general i think that's mm-hmm. what i loved about mm-hmm. acharya she would bring she was she had so much passion about hinduism and and the south america and all these other religions i mean it's don't you think bob it's rare to find somebody like that yeah she really has a had a world's eye view on this stuff, uh, very much like uh, people like Joseph Campbell and, and others who, uh, Houston Smith, uh, people that know enough about it, that when they begin to synthesize it, it uh, it's worth listening to, uh, even if you don't wind up absolutely agreeing. But there's so much in it that uh, you, that somebody with an eagle eye can really mine it and bring things out, like uh, Campbell with the the mythic hero archetype and so forth. It, it's basically Jungian, as he admits, but he go he throws the net very far and wide and brings all these. Uh, these parallels and and tries to show how they they amount to a sort of religious humanism uh he didn't seem to be a theist but he he sort of looked at uh looked at it psychologically and i have to call him a religious humanist because his stance was this awe before the depths of of uh, human nature and as, as he, i think he would agree would have agreed with Tillich that you can speak of a God above or God below that is within, and it really doesn't matter. Well said indeed, and I would agree. And I think, yeah, Cherry had such a awe for, she really, as cranky as she could get, she really loved what humanity created, the art, the religions, the myth, and everything. So I learned mm-hmm. how to be positive, but also to be critical of all the, the BS out there, which <laughs> manifested with fundamentalism and other expressions. But so awesome. Well, why don't we get into a little HP Lovecraft? Again, this is uh, also astrotheology, as we will find out. And I think we're going to mm-hmm. find out we'll have to deal more with Jung when talking about Lovecraft and his impact and everything else. But why don't we start with you, Carol? Tell us about your uh, encounters with Lovecraft and uh, what you think of him. <laughs> well, surprisingly, I, I I have not read a lot of Lovecraft. <laughs> Why am I on? <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I uh, <laughs> uh, and I'm I'm fascinated with with horror in general. Um, Lovecraft. I mean, I have read um, Lovecraft, and and he's. Uh, there's, there's something, um, well, I, I would say trans, transcendent about the horror element. I mean, about the, the, the existential aspect of it. Um, and I, I think it's an expression. Um, I mean, I think of Lovecraft as, as an author that, you know, is, is, is sort of in touch with, uh, something 
deeply psychological. You know, I, I'm, I'm not good at articulating these things, but, but uh, something very important. And, and it, it really seems to, um, I don't know, strike a chord with, I, I've observed it in, in so many people in, in you know, that, that Bob has, uh, uh, been around and, and been in touch with, you know, I've observed their connection with Lovecraft, and I just find it so fascinating. What about the horror genre in itself? I mean, again, we mentioned Jung. Do you think horror, and of course, if Bob, if you want to take this away, is horror as simple as we are addressing our shadow? We're finding some sort of catharsis? I mean, horror has been around since ancient times. Well, today it's not very well respected as a genre, and um, and I think uh, in the culture we we don't like when things are too scary. Like Halloween is starting to really fade out of the culture. It's sort of impolite to be too scary, I, I think, or even uh, polit- politically incorrect. Um, you know, that uh, children should dress up like their favorite superhero or animal or princess, um, which is fine. I mean, you know, um, different personas are fine, but but the opportunity to to deal with the shadow in a well safe way, uh, in a in a in a way that, um, you know, it coaxes people to 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 go there because we need to, to be, uh, psychologically, uh, healthy. And, um, uh, but unfortunately like horror, uh, it never wins an Oscar. And, uh, uh, for example, I mean, it's just not taken seriously, but you know, things like, uh, Dr. Jekyll and, and, and Mr. Hyde are some of the greatest things written about our, 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 our nature. Um, and well, it's, 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 it's done with horror, but I'll, I'll let Bob take over. He has some great things to say. <laughs> well, stuff like, uh, the picture of Dorian Gray and, uh, the, uh, strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and, uh, especially those really are cautionary tales. They're, uh, didactic though. Uh, the only problem with didactic fiction is sometimes, uh, it, uh, lacks the literary merit because they just can't wait to get to the punchline, but not the case with these books or the movies. In fact, uh, there, at least I think this is still true. There have been more film versions of Jekyll and Hyde than of any other book. Mm. Uh, And and it's not too tough to see why, because it shows that uh, the the attempt to to attain uh, what uh, the Methodists used to call entire sanctification, to eradicate the, the sinful or the lower human nature, is a big mistake because it's not going anywhere. And the more you repress it, the more the time bomb is ticking. And uh, I think that explains why uh, some religious leaders uh, and otherwise respectable people suddenly 
are scandal ridden. Like, what is this guy doing with with his secretary? Or how could this guy be such a hateful bigot? I think it's because they, uh, in their better moments, they really would abhor these things, but they've just suppressed them. And now it explodes and they're as surprised as anybody else. And, you know, how when uh, mass murderers like the son of Sam are arrested, People say, I never would have expected it from this guy. He was uh, as nice as the day was long, and but he's got a whole bunch of severed heads in the basement. Like mm-hmm. That's often the case with people that have exploded into an evil uh, nova. Uh, they, they were surprised, too. They thought they had everything under control. But Jung points out the way to do that is to face the shadow and to deal with it in in a non-harmful way i think what he said about the archetypes is true of the shadow it's all of a piece anyway but he said that if you want to become mature if you want to uh uh, become an individual. He, he called the whole process individuation. Uh, you've got to first consolidate the ego uh, and you're the center of everything and you have to be uh, up through adolescence or whatever to provide the, uh, the, the, the springboard for becoming a self with a capital S where you're, uh, there's no longer uh, a, a dichotomy between your interests and those of mankind. Uh, you make everyone's interests your own, and and some people wind up like Albert Schweitzer and so forth, where they're living for the world because they sort of are the world. And uh, so, how are you going to get to that point? Well, everybody has wired, hardwired into their brains these archetypes, these numbers and sh- geometric shapes and so forth, and uh, we see them in uh in fairy tales in myths in art and uh, the reason we and and they're in every culture uh why well because we need to be ex- exposed to them or to to expose ourselves uh to them uh and we have them in dreams and so on mm-hmm. and i see them as like computer icons uh you've got all of these programs in the computer uh but you're not going to be able to use them unless you click on the icon well uh, the archetype scene in the myth or whatever uh is uh that's the uh the the icon you, you press it by in, by if it's a ritual living out the symbol like baptism uh, for resurrection and things like that uh, and uh, the more of this you do the more of this unconscious territory you survey and become familiar with uh, the broader and deeper you become and you're on your way to real maturity and that's equally true of the shadow you've got to uh, dine with the devil with a long spoon rather than actually doing nefarious things. See, and that's what you're doing with the uh, tarot cards. Um, there's a lot of archetypes floating around there and, and you, uh, you commune with them in a sense and you get to know that territory, as you say. But isn't it funny how that is, um, considered taboo among a lot of religions? Um, that there's fear surrounding getting to know oneself. Um, 
whether it be the shadow or just, you know, everything, uh, diving in, um, to, to the psyche is, uh, is, is somewhat taboo. And, uh, you know, again, tarot, tarot cards, I mean, they seem to be something of the occult, which only means hidden. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, so people shy away from it. They, they give in to fears. And this is another thing that the shadow is dealing with is, is allowing people to face their fears. What are they? Well, all these taboos that are handed down or, uh, well, it's a host of things, but, but yeah, the tarot card reminded me of, uh, I mean, your, your icons. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. That's terrific. Uh, alone among fundamentalists that I know of, uh, John Warwick Montgomery, a, a extremely conservative Lutheran, uh, he, oddly enough, has a fascination with the occult and understands that uh, that uh, all of this night side stuff has a positive uh, nature and function in a Christian worldview. So he talks about how alchemy is, is self tra- uh, transcendence and transformation uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, of course, there are other ways of looking at it, but he says that's how Christian alchemists viewed it. Or um, uh, the uh, um, well, the tarot that and the Kabbalah. There have been Christian versions of these for centuries, and so uh, it's uh, like a narrowing of of scope. Uh, and it's a it's a very old religious problem when the religious authorities try to control the sources of divination or revelation. Uh, we don't want you reading the horoscope, Isaiah says. Uh, we don't want you having seances. No, you come to us and we will use the authorized methods to tell you the truth because we want to. We want to contain what what is meant by truth. That's why the Catholic Church is pretty picky about Marian apparitions. Uh, they they need to control it. They don't know what the heck the the uh, perpetual motion, Our Lady of Perpetual Motion, is is saying uh, unless it checks out. And of course, if it checks out, it means it's useless as, as a revelation since you already know it. But that's what they want um, with uh, uh, Lovecraft. This ties in in a couple of ways with things you've said. What gave him the transcendent perspective he had was his boyhood fascination with astronomy. He went to the, uh, I think, Moses Brown School's uh, uh, observatory when he was a young kid. He'd ride his bicycle there. And as a kid, he wrote... uh, astronomy columns for local newspapers uh he he was a a genius and this led to what he called cosmicism which he thought was the essential factor in horror that Mm -hmm. when you grasp the uh vastness of an emptiness of the cosmos and you you begin to realize we we are nothing in the larger scope of things. The sun's going to go nova one day. There'll be nobody to remember that humanity was ever here. All of our art, architecture, music, cultural achievements gone. Uh, we will have left as little a mark uh, on the universe as the pterodactyl did. And, and this is really the 
shocker that Lovecraft tries to convey when people in his stories discover the the old ones of Antarctica or Cthulhu or whatever, because what that's telling them is there are utterly non-human life forms vastly superior to us. And they may even have created us as a joke. Uh, and because that's ultimately <laughs> all we are. And uh, when he was a kid, he, he became suicidal uh, temporarily, riding his little bike to the river where he planned to drown himself. And at the last minute, he said, nah, I, I'm not going to do it. The world is just too beautiful, too fascinating uh, that to, to uh, exit it like that. And he said that's what his whole ethic was based on, kind of an ancient Greek thing, the, the beauty of, of good behavior and good character and all that. But as Fritz Leiber, a great horror writer himself, uh, kind of a protege of Lovecraft, few decades ago, he wrote the definitive piece on what Lovecraft was doing. It's a Copernican revolution. He made science. He substituted science for the supernatural and had a vision of the numinous, the uh, the uh, mis- the mysterium tremendum that is that Rudolf Otto said was at the basis of all religious experience. Something triggers the awareness. Uh, of uh, the the mysterium tremendum, the mystery at which we tremble, and the mysterium fascinans, the mystery that uh, that fascinates and and enthralls us, and that's why we have a double edged reaction to uh, these epiphanies. Uh, we fear it because we, in the light of it, we recognize our ultimate nullity. As Isaiah says, when he sees God on the throne in the temple, uh, he says, uh, woe is me, for I am undone. Uh, and and uh, there's several things like this. Moses is afraid to look at God, and so on and so on. There you can find examples in all religions all over the world. And uh, he says that's what Lovecraft is talking about. His protagonists see the horrifying but fascinating sublime. And why are you attracted to it? Like any kid in a horror movie, I'm sure you've seen or you've done this, uh, where somebody is covering their eyes, but then they start peeking through their fingers. They're (laughs) afraid to see it, but they've got to see it. And (laughs) that's the primal religious experience. So there, there is this sublime encounter that is essential to religion and to Lovecraft's vision of horror. And he learned it from astronomy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it is so profound. Now, I admit not everything is profound. Uh, you can have horror comedies and so on. What the heck? Just entertainment. But there, there are amazing lessons to be learned from horror fiction and films. And even if it's not a lesson, if it provokes in you this kind of numinous terror and so forth, that's wholesome. That's religion. Uh, so there's it, so much good to be said about it. So I don't want to negate the, the dark side of it. Like the thing that's wrong with kids dressing up as clowns and hobos for Halloween. They're taking what was the dark side and dragging it into the light. So everything is cuteness and niceness. Hey, that's not the point. Uh, maybe that's what you want to be, and so that's your ideal self, and you've got the chance to uh, to uh, show that, exhibit it. 
what you're supposed to do is to exhibit your own dark side in a harmless way. Clowns aren't dark. Well, yeah, true. <laughs> true. Yeah, Pennywise. <laughs> yeah, Joker. Yeah. They are now. Yeah, well, that's really well said, both of you. And, yes, I didn't know Fritz Lieber wrote horror. I, I just read his a Farfed and the Grey Mauser series and really loved it. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, <laughs> big fan of those, uh, that great uh, science fiction. And it's amazing, too. Again, back to our point, guys, it's, again, Acheria and uh, Lovecraft looked at the stars. They focus on the stars. And somehow in the, as Joseph Campbell, you see the horror of the universe, but at the same time, you are inspired to just be better and leave something better behind. So it's interesting how we have these two parallels. Just like in Psalm 90, when I consider the, the heavens, the work of thy hands, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And it ends up saying, uh, at the most, we live to be 80 or 90, uh, but teach us to number our days, you know, so, so we can do something that will last. I mean, that's exactly what you're saying, I think. Yeah, very inspiring. And uh, again, whether you like his fiction or not, or writing style, Lovecraft is one of the most influential science fiction writers and probably yep. the most influential horror writer, even more than Edgar Allan Poe. I mean, he informed a whole generation. Even on this show, we talk a lot mm. about Philip K. Dick. Philip K. Dick was hugely inspired by Lovecraft, even though the only horror he wrote about was about the surveillance state and all that. But Lovecraft, is it's its amazing how he's affected the world, and he's still more popular than ever. I mean, you got The, the Color Out of Space just came out. Yeah, um, the movie, right? yeah. Yeah, and then there's Lovecraft Country coming on HBO in the fall. I mean, he's still, again, more relevant and influential than ever. Yeah. Yeah, he would have been amazed to see any of this. Uh, plush toys of Cthulhu. I, 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 he would not have believed it. Yeah, I don't know what it felt. I mean, he obviously had a short and tragic and unhappy life, but at least you're explaining why he was who he is. But, I mean, obviously in this show we want to talk, of course, some uh, Gnostic themes too. I mean, wasn't his other influence also theosophy, where he got a lot of his mythos or cosmology? Yeah, yeah the, the, you cannot really understand the shadow out of time without knowing about theosophy. It, Lovecraft didn't believe in it, but his friend E. Hoffman Price claimed to believe in it. And he told him all these things and, and Lovecraft said, oh, this is just a rich uh, vein to mine. And uh, and it's and the shadow out of time is really all about theosophy. But he mentions it by name in the call of Cthulhu as well. And uh, he says that that uh, theosophists have a kind of bland, naive understanding, but at least it's a beginning of understanding of the vast scope of the cosmos and cosmic history. Uh, so great. Uh, you know, yeah. the, the fantasy part of it, uh, Robert E. Howard and, and uh, Fritz Leiber and, and others following in that, that uh, path, they have uh, somewhat of a different angle on it, but it's so compatible. Uh, Lovecraft and Howard were correspondents and buddies and read each other's stuff. Uh, Conan stories, for instance, uh, Howard's 
heroic fiction, uh, the glory of empire and battle and so forth, and nobility and the noble savage are all under the shadow of this cosmic void uh, that it's uh, you may battle for the throne, but of course this this too shall pass. And so there's a kind of philosophical depth in that, and uh, it's uh, it's on a on a continuum, I think, in the story collection Horrors and Heresies uh, that uh, we published that I wrote. Um, I have uh, Lovecraftian themed stories, and uh, so uh, like for instance, uh, the Caliphate of Cthulhu where you find out that Islamic terrorism goes back to an unsuspected route uh, and uh, the old ones and all that, uh, then uh, I've got a retelling of the story of King Jehu uh, from the Bible, where he's kind of like Howard's King Cull. And it, it's easy to spin it out that way because there's religion and its myths have latent in them a lot of the elements of horror because there's a dark side. I remember my uh, mentor, Michael Kogan was on some public access show with a local atheist and Kogan was very liberal religiously and took very, uh, took things very figuratively. And uh, he did not accept the uh, debunking uh, uh, pro, uh, uh, attitude of this uh, sort of village atheist and she was saying, how can you like the Bible with all this genocide and rape and murder and all that stuff? And Kogan said, well, the truth is not always nice. The Bible isn't about niceness. Uh, and that's the, it's trying to uh, eliminate the dark side and, uh, you, and not the Bible, but the complaints like this. Uh, you you really need to face up to that and wrestle with it and so on. And uh, the Bible does uh, sometimes and embarrasses its fundamentalist advocates because they kind of wish it didn't have that in it either, but it does, and there's a reason. Maybe it's the greatest horror story, the Old Testament, right? <laughs> <laughs> could be, could be. Hey, uh, yeah. uh, Bob, I was. do you think there's any links between the stories that dwell in the in the Lovecraft mythos and uh, Gnosticism? Yeah. Uh, for one big thing, the, there's a kind of Faustian Gnostic element in it that the Lovecraft's protagonists cannot resist following up clues to, to uh, an unsuspected truth about human life about the world about the meaning in the universe of a lack of it and it's very dismaying the more so the more deeply they get into it but they must know so it's a knowledge that doesn't save the soul but damns it and uh, yet one must know and uh, so that that's uh and the ultimate knowledge is of cosmic futility uh gee the, the guy in uh the Call of Cthulhu says, I, I wish I hadn't discovered this. Now the color and brightness have gone out of the world for me. And, whew, uh, and uh, so there, there's that. But in terms of specifics, the uh, well, the, his, his books like the Necronomicon 
are symbols of that. The Necronomicon volume is uh, in in his stories is very scarce because uh, ecclesiastical authorities for centuries have tried to destroy it, but a handful of copies remain scattered around the world. Uh, and this is hundreds of years old, uh, written in the 700s or something. And so that's a double symbol of knowledge that is forbidden and ancient. Uh, so it takes some delving to find it. And you may be sorry you did. Okay, then one of those things is that the universe and its seeming laws are completely chaotic. And he says that there is this confusion, a nuclear chaos at the center of existence called Azathoth. And uh, he may have gotten that from the Bible. Jeremiah was from the village of Anathoth, or who knows. But uh, uh, but uh, this, this entity is described as the blind idiot god that uh, is kept asleep by uh, idiot flute players. Uh, and if he ever wakes up, there's going to be big trouble. He borrowed that from Lord Dunsany. But it is central, and, and it ex if there is a mad creator who didn't know what the heck he was doing, that kind of symbolizes and explains, quote-unquote, the madness of the universe that we live in. Uh, don't look for meaning in this, because Azathoth, the blind idiot god, created it. And uh, th that's just like the Gnostic Demiurge, Yaldabaoth, yeah. or other names. I mean, that really uh, is uh, right out of Gnosticism. But he doesn't have the um, uh, the strata above that with the aeons and the pleroma or whatever. That doesn't exist in his uh, mythos. No, by the time he gets to anything like that, like servant races, uh, the the... the the uh, Miko, the the crustacean fungi from Yugoth and the uh, Whisperer in Darkness, they're depicted as an alien race, though they do worship Nyarlathotep. Uh, the the star-headed, the crinoid creatures and at the Mountains of Madness, they're creatures of science fiction, and yet beyond their mountain range, there is something that, that horrifies them. Like, what is that? Uh, and there are humble gods of earth in some of the stories, but they're afraid of the of the great ones beyond them. And so he has this two-tiered thing. Uh, and uh, with uh, with Auguster left, you have that them transformed into basically races of archons serving the old ones. Um, though the old ones partake both of the ions of the pleroma emanations from the ultimate god which doesn't exist in lovecraft uh and uh the the henchmen of the demiurge the archons so they're kind of all of these science fiction races that lovecraft created uh they become or the the deep ones in the shadow over Innsmouth, they become lackeys and in effect uh archons but in the in the cosmology, the old ones are put to sleep or defeated by even older gods, right? Or is that a later thing, Bob? Uh, that's later. It's Auguster left that uh, introduced that wrinkle into it, and uh, yet uh, he's sort of building on the science fiction novellas of Lovecraft, where you have ancient 
wars between competing alien races. He's sort of taken that and crossed it with Lovecraft's earlier idea of monstrous gods, which are aliens anyway. So it, it was a natural sort of a fusion. But uh, Derleth has the elder gods uh, defeating the rebellious old ones who were like he's compares it to the fall of the angels uh and and cthulhu is like lucifer and so on lovecraft never said that uh if for him the ultimate beings are the uh the old ones who are not hostile to mankind but indifferent to it uh, they symbolize the laws of nature which must crush all intelligent life without even knowing they're doing it uh, and uh, that's, I mean, how the dinosaurs died. Somebody wipe them out. Oh, apparently it was this big, bad asteroid. Well, yeah, you might as well have a asteroid, a thaw. Uh, and because uh, <laughs> so, his thing was, it, it's not intentional. It's uh, impersonal, super personal. It's impersonal. And uh, and humans are, are you're not going to escape the the tsunami. Uh, it's not like you've got an invasion of uh, of aliens. Uh, sometimes he does speak that way, but it was August or Leth, followed by Brian Lumley and Lynn Carter and others who who uh, went in Derleth's direction and and made it more systematic. I love those stories too, but Lovecraft is the one really with the nihilistic approach. Yeah, and uh, kind of keeping in vibe with the whole Gnostic theme, it seems the great trope in Lovecraft, if you've got a, a male man of science, he thinks he's got it all figured out, and he goes exploring, and then he has this sort of gnosis, sees that there's a lot more in the world than he has, but he just reacts by doing what most people should do, which is go insane, right? Mm. <laughs> it, it is great opening of The Call of Cthulhu, he says, so far, uh, science hasn't harmed us much. Of course, this is before the atom bomb and all that. He said, uh, but as we push further in all different directions, the revelations science brings us about the frightful character of the universe and our precarious place in it, uh, what's going to happen is that uh, the people will... Uh, uh, most people will retreat into a new dark age of superstition and the ones that don't will just go crazy. And I have to think he's, he's thinking of the controversy uh, over evolution, which was pretty furious in, in his day, because uh, what is it that, uh, what was the issue there? Well, that the Bible is not true, literally, uh, and that uh, we are not the crown of creation, the apple of, uh, of the eye of a God who made the world for us and keeps it going. No, forget it. Uh, you're, you, the monkey is your uncle. You are an ape. And uh, that's he, he knew that how uh, distasteful that was to people. And he said, look what they're doing. They're uh, retreating into superstition. And even today, I think like at least half of the American population rejects evolution for the same reason. Here's an interesting point. Uh, somebody brought up uh, in this show, a, a past guest. 
he said that he saw Cthulhu as sort of a Gnostic Christ because he was awakening from the dead and bringing this revelation to the world. And unlike the other gods, he's not just sort of reptilian or tentacle mess. He's sort of half humanoid and half uh, monster so he's like a demigod like jesus and he sleeps and of course you've got dagon who's the john the baptist character have you heard anything like this bob or is this sort of a unique theory well i i have heard it before uh and wilbur whateley is even more overtly a kind of a christ satire uh because he is a demigod with one human parent Lavinia Whateley and uh, one divine parent, Yag Sathoth, and uh, he is there to initiate the kingdom of God, the the uh, return of the old ones and the scraping clean of human life on the earth. And uh, he he dies killed by a guard dog where he's trying to steal the Necronomicon, uh, but that's sort of okay because with his absence the uh, invisible behemoth he's been feeding which is his own twin brother albeit invisible uh it breaks out of the uh the building it was in and begins to ravage the countryside devouring uh cattle etc etc and it makes its way up to the top of Sentinel Hill. And by this time, the Miskatonic University scholars have figured out what's going on. And they follow it up there and spray it with some kind of power powder that makes it visible for an instant and use a, a counter incantation from the Necronomicon. And as it begins to fade off and return to the other dimension, it croaks out, Father! And Burleson points out, this is like Jesus at the top of Mount Calvary. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I I think that's pretty clear. Uh, other people have said it too, but I, the first one I know of was Don Burleson who pointed that out. We at the end, first I'd like to say, Vance, thanks for keeping us uh, on this journey into the stars. Oh, I got to thank you, Miguel, for... Having me be on the show with Bob and Carol. It's been uh, great, guys. I admire your work, Bob. So keep oh, it up. Thank you. Peace. Yes, thank the you. The stars were right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the stars are in line. Well, thank you very much, Carol and Bob, for coming on AM Byte on this anniversary special. And hopefully we will meet in a future one. And uh, there'll be less shadows and more people will be, uh, again, looking at the stars for answers. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. <laughs> Have a good night, everyone. You do. Good night. And there you have it, my beloved True Seekers, the first part of our interview with Carol and Robert Price on this anniversary special. What a cool celebration. In our second part, we'll certainly get more into the Gnostic themes of the Cthulhu mythos, as well as associate some of Lovecraft's gods with ancient gods in myth and lore. You'll be surprised at some of the associations. Bob and Carol will explain the influence on Lovecraft, too. We'll take a deep dive into our favorite Lovecraft films or Lovecraft-inspired movies. We'll finally get into Bob's new book, 
horrors and heresies, a devilish blend of religion and Lovecraftian genre, which leads to some discussion on the Cathars, Apollonius of Tyan, Islamic mysticism, and much more. As mentioned in the intro, and as a bonus, I'll provide a past interview with Scott Jones, author of When the Stars Are Right, where he really punches through the Gnostic themes and the Cthulhu mythos. You'll be blown away. So become an AB Prime member or Patreon at Patreon for the full content, as well as many other cool bonuses that includes all past shows in their entirety. 14 years of shows. Just go to thegodabovegod.com or message my ass. Please continue to help me grow this red pill cafeteria, even if it's donations or buying me books. We need Gnosis more than ever, and we've only just begun reaching those who need to wake up here in 2020. You won't find this high-quality Gnostic and Hermetic wisdom or guess and their unique insights anywhere else in cyberspace or even meat space. Thanks for being here on this anniversary of astrotheology and starry fates. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye as always. <laughs>